Welcome to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This commencement address, entitled The Economics of Goodness, was given on April 26, 2018 by Michael O. Levitt, three-time elected governor of Utah, former cabinet member under George W. Bush, and founder of Levitt Partners. President Worthen and distinguished guests, faculty, graduates, ladies and gentlemen, I acknowledge with gratitude the privilege of receiving an honorary degree from this great university. Likewise, the opportunity to address you briefly today. My congratulations to the graduates, but I am especially pleased to see parents here. Some years ago, one of our children had graduated, was graduating with a bachelor's degree. He said they want 69 bucks for the cap and gown, and I'm not going to walk. I said, what? You need to go to the ceremony. It is a rite of passage. You'll value your graduation picture striding across the stage with your diploma in hand for the rest of your life. Look, I said, I'll pay the $69. Sometime later, I'm standing on the curb at Los Angeles International Airport, and I receive a call from my son. The conversation goes something like this. Me, hi, what's up? My son, well, I did it. Did what? I walked, you know, graduation, cap and gown, got the picture, just like you said. I said, wait, what, today? What about us? My son, really, I didn't think it was that big a deal to you. (laughs) So I would like to begin today by simply saying to all of you, this is a very big deal. (laughs) And may I say thank you for including your parents. Uh, gratefully, we witnessed a commencement at a graduate school, and he now knows it's a big deal. Today, I, I want to share with you three brief stories. Each one illustrates a lesson, a simple lesson, that I have observed but not yet perfected. The first story, while I was governor of Utah, I attended a a dinner at a mountain resort. The host asked each of the guests to introduce themselves, but added, as you do, please tell us an important lesson that you learned during the last year. One at a time, each person spoke. Now, this was a very impressive group of people. It included university presidents, prominent business leaders, political figures. And it seemed like each participant felt they had a need to outdo the last in eloquence and in gravitas. 
Now, Shane, one of my protective service officers who traveled with me, attended the dinner. And I could sense his increasing discomfort as the task crept closer and closer to him. Finally, all of the eyes in the room were focused on Shane. He stood and sort of nervously introduced himself. As for the important lesson this year, he said, I protect dignitaries for a living, and I completed a class on advancing events. We learned that it's critical to always plan an escape route. And he paused, put his hand on the side door that he sat next to, and said, and I'm using mine right now, and disappeared into the night. (laughs) It was a brilliant moment. There was a pause among this elite group, and they erupted in laughter. The next year, I attended the same meeting. Everyone remembered Shane's illustrated story about escape routes. The lesson, humor and humility is more enduring than hubris. Second story. I was reminded again of that meeting where I had the experience with Shane when I was invited by a global corporation to participate in a day-long meeting. The subject was about that matter on which all of you are thinking right now, the future. Again, it was attended by economists and futurists and a handful of corporate leaders. I felt a little awkward even being there. It was the summer of 1999. The meeting was held on the 107th floor of the World Trade Center. Huge windows revealed the New York Harbor. The Statue of Liberty was in the distance. It was an inspiring place to think about the future. The moderator started the meeting by describing a hypothetical scenario. Pretend that the year is 2015, he said. Looking back over the last 15 years, what was the most surprising thing that happened? Now, it is now to me a great irony that we were in the World Trade Center talking about the future. None of us could have known that on 9-11, just two years later, that very room in which we sat would be part of a history, historical event that would, could never have been contemplated. One by one, they began to respond with smart thoughts about the future. A banker spoke of a paperless currency system. An oil executive forecast tensions in the Middle East. A technologist talked about the far reaches of of digitization. And a bit like Shane, I I was feeling a growing anxiety and pressure as it crept closer and closer to me, and yet there was no side door available. Only diversion would do. Since we're reflecting on the future, I said, I'm going to tell you who won the 2015 Nobel Prize in Economics. All of the economists in the room perked up. However, I said that the big surprise isn't who won. The big surprise is that the Nobel Prize in Economics was, won, was not won by an, an economist. 
It was won by a sociologist who advanced a new economic theory called the economics of goodness. It's a simple but powerful idea. Every nation or state has economic assets that produce wealth. It may be minerals, it may be a seaport, it may be climate, but there is a universal asset of immense value inherent in any community if we use it. And that power is simply the inclination of its citizens to do the right thing voluntarily. Let me illustrate, I said. Imagine the economic heft of a nation, a state, or a community that, that was free of drugs and alcohol abuse. Health care costs would plummet. Worker productivity would skyrocket. Families that are torn apart by abuse and financial hardship, wrought by substance abuse, would remain together. Welfare roles would fall. There would be less violence in society. We would build and maintain fewer prisons. Imagine the economic power of a nation able to invest trillions of dollars over time back into education and investment and research because of their deployment of this great power. Such a place would prosper. For a moment, there was silence in that room. And then a surprise. One of the participants, I'll call him Professor Cynical. Do you know him? Uh, practically shouted at me. What do you mean by goodness? You're trying to turn this into some kind of a religious discussion. Before I could respond, a well-known economist beat me to it. Not true, he said. I'm an atheist, and this isn't about religion. It's about human behavior and the predictability of consequences. People who work hard do better than slackers. Those who are honest get in less trouble than those who cheat. People who are kind have more friends than those who are cruel. Communities where people serve and care for each other are safer than those that are, where that's not true. Listening to him acquit that case, I thought to myself, this may be the only time I've ever said amen to an atheist. <laughs> Here's the lesson. The economics of goodness applies to individuals as well as nations. People who work hard, those who are honest and reliable, have a better chance to succeed than those that don't. Now, there's a postscript to this story. In 2015, I got thinking, I wonder who did win the Nobel Prize in 2015? Well, it wasn't a sociologist. I was wrong about that. Nor was it giving the award for the economics of goodness. But the prize was awarded to the esteemed Princeton economist Angus Deaton. 
His contribution, however, was very much in the neighborhood of the economics of goodness. They awarded him the prize on the basis of his analysis of consumption, of poverty and welfare. In essence, the economics of human beings. The economics of goodness is not a new idea. It is not simply about money either. It is a fundamental truth, an eternal law, demonstrated in civilization after civilization and in individual life after individual life. Prophets simply and repeatedly have declared, if you keep my commandments, you will prosper in the land. Story number three. I was a 14-year-old boy. My local stake had a farm where we raised corn that would be provided for families in need. As service, we were expected to work on the farm. At the end of the summer, it was time to harvest the corn, and I grudgingly attended at the urging of a leader who reminded me I'd made a commitment. But I neglected to tell my mother where I was going. Once I was there, I I was surrounded by other volunteers who, like me, were cutting and cooking and canning corn, and eight hours just flew by. By the time I got home, my mother had been frantically trying to find me. So I explained where I had been. Her irritation cooled. But then she asked me, how did you feel about the experience? How did you feel while you were serving? I explained to her, I was I actually, much to my surprise, had enjoyed it. I was proud of the cans of corn that we had stacked in the warehouse and how that was going to be used. And then with a single sentence, my mother taught a sermon that I have never forgotten. Mike, she said, We get our self-esteem from those we serve. I have found that to be true. It is as my mother suggested. Service is the source of our self-esteem. It is also the source of satisfaction and a source of healing. So when this big deal is over, You will leave the campus of Brigham Young University and you will find your way into a world that badly needs your light. May you remember that humor and humility is more endearing than hubris. That the economics of goodness apply to individuals as well as nations. That hard work, honesty, personal discipline makes a difference in your capacity to succeed and perhaps most of all, that we will get our self-esteem from those we serve. Therefore, go. Go humbly to serve. Work hard. Be honest. Be reliable. And I testify to you that you will be blessed and success will be yours. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. 
Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.